Their names are Judith and Natalie Raynon. And though those might not be familiar to you, my guess is that you know their story, at least in part. So who are they? They are the two American hostages released by Hamas on 20 October 2023. And by now their story is at least a little bit familiar. On the morning of 7 October, the militant Islamic terrorist group Hamas launched what is now the deadliest terror attack in Israeli history. The attack included massacres and shootings of Israeli civil civilians, takeovers of settlements, attacks upon military facilities, all under the cover of the fire of thousands of rockets. Now, in the attack, Hamas took hostage some 200-plus Israeli citizens, along with 12 Americans, and citizens from Europe and other countries. Seven days after taking the hostages, nine were killed. Hamas claims that this was in response to Israeli bombings in the Gaza Strip. The murders sent shockwaves across the world. Ensuing days to this very moment have been filled with tearful testimonies, families impacted by the terror attack, families who want their loved ones back home safely. Listening to the stories of Judith and Natalie, who described the horror that they survived, one can hardly imagine what the families of victims, much less the victims themselves, are living through. In fact, if there's one word that strikes fear into our hearts, it is the word hostage. We cringe at the notion of being taken against our will, removed from those who love us, only to be placed into conditions that are nothing short of torturous. Being held hostage, one person said to me, is nothing short of hell on earth. And I, I can't help but agree. So let me ask you this question. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be cute. I'm not trying to be glib. I, re I really do want you to think about this. What, what if it were you? H how would you respond? To having your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife taken from you, perhaps tortured, even killed, how would you feel toward the persons that took your loved one? Would you be passive or aggressive? Would you pray or would you be so mad that God would allow such a thing that you would turn away even from him? How would you respond? There's a reason that I ask. With this podcast, we usher in the second season of God-sized living. And I have to tell you that for me, that is really hard to believe. When I started God-sized living, it was, and it still is, my goal to put together a podcast that, in a small way, might challenge the often undersized, too small perspective that we have of God and His place in our lives. Perspectives, I'm convinced, that cause us to live our lives far below that place of joy and adventure that God wants us to have. Now, the format that we've been using is pretty, pretty straightforward. Each season, we journey through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, until it's in. You know, what I've found is that each chapter of each book lifts up themes that have a way of provoking the listener to think about what's happening in our world today, what it, what it means to live with a faith that is God versus culturally sized. In season one, we journey together through what has become 
definitely become one of my favorite books of the Bible, given the times that we're living in today, namely the Old Testament book of Daniel. If ever there were a prophecy relevant for today, Daniel's words are it. Uh, in this season, we'll switch gears a little bit. We're going to turn to a New Testament book, namely the books of First and Second Peter. Like Daniel, uh, I believe you're going to find this book, though it's written in the first century, to be amazingly relevant to today. In today's episode, it's my hope to provide just a little bit of background or context that might guide our journey through this book, beginning with one word. The word is hostage. So one of the things that got me thinking a little bit about this, this, this word, hostage, is a book written by John Giddock shortly after the terrorist attacks on America, September 9, 2011. Those who were alive at the time of this attack, who experienced it, will remember the atmosphere of uncertainty that followed. The days immediately following 9-11 were filled with questions. Who was behind the attacks? Would they strike again? Was it safe to go about normal life, to go grocery shopping or board a plane for a business trip or vacation? Fear was in the air. People literally looked over their shoulders and wondered, am I safe? It's into this frame that Giddick stepped with a, a look at past terrorist events, many of which uh, we're witnessing uh, in the Gaza of the taking of hostages. In this book, Giddick recalls the Honolulu hostage crisis of 1996. It was short, lasted only seven hours, but it paralyzed the city. Or maybe you'll remember the Alabama bunker hostage crisis, 2013. Most famously, the Iranian hostage crisis that began in 1979 and endured, remember this, 444 days. It's an interesting, interesting number to me. Remember with me that Iran held 66 American hostages, 52 of which remained hostage during that entire 444 day period. I say it's interesting because four, if you remember uh, in the Bible, sim symbolizes the ends of the earth. So there, there's a sense in which you get a trinity of fours and you have this, this thought that hmm, maybe they didn't intend this, but the Iranians were trying to hold the whole of the earth hostage. The question that Giddick's book addresses is one of expediency. The author intends to challenge those who govern to stand ready to respond, not to the possibility or probability of future hostage events, but to the reality that they will take place. What he wants to know is, are we ready for that day? A day, of course, which is before us even now. For, for me, what makes Giddick's question relevant is its connectivity to the book that stands before us, First and Second Peter. So I want to ask you this, how familiar are you with the context that serves as a backdrop to this book? Most conservative scholars set the date for 1 Peter around 64 AD. This, of course, takes us into Nero's reign. Nero, just remember this with me, was the fifth emperor during what is known as the Julio-Claudian dynasty. He's preceded by Caesar Augustus Tiberius Caligula and Claudius Tiberius, each of the last three becoming more and more decadent until we get to Nero, whose decadence surpasses all of them. Read any history, and you'll quickly see that Nero is known for his cruelty, debauchery, eccentricity. 
He's also known for his persecution of Christianity. So why did he? Why did Nero persecute the Christians? Remember with me that prior to the year 64, many of the leaders and citizens of Rome had grown tired of Nero. From both an economic and social perspective, most people believe that a continued rule under Nero would lead literally to the downfall of Rome. Knowing the sentiments of Rome's leadership and citizenry, it suggested that the great fire of Rome in AD 64 became the tipping point for Nero's life. It was in July of that year that Rome caught on fire. And while not Rome's first fire, this was certainly its most damaging. Histories estimate that some two-thirds of the city was devastated by its flames. Now, some suggest that it was Nero himself who, for political purposes, actually started the fire of Rome. Others disagree. Regardless, it was the great fire of 64 that led Roman citizens that be, to begin to call for Nero's removal. In order to save himself, Nero needed to shift attention away from himself. And so in October of 64, four months after the great fire had died down, Nero began to blame the Christians, already unpopular in Rome, for setting this city ablaze. Intent on keeping Rome's attention off himself, it suggested that Nero began a campaign of public persecution. While persecution was not something new to Rome, the level and extent to which it rose under Nero was. I want to recommend a book here. If you've never read it before, I think that one of the better books written toward understanding the persecution of Christians that began under Nero is the book titled The Flames of Rome. It's an old book. It's written by Dr. Paul Meyer, former professor of ancient history in Western Michigan University. Now, I'll warn you, the book's not easy to read, not because it's historically difficult, but because Meyer offers an authentic picture of the cruelty of Nero towards Christians. Typically, when we think about persecution, the first images that come to our minds are those of the Colosseum. We picture Christians being eaten by lions or killed by gladiators. Those images are gruesome. But I don't think they even begin to capture the very real and sick ways in which persecution was carried out in the time of Nero. I don't want to become overly graphic, but imagine with me a day when your neighbor and fellow Christian is taken by Roman centurions. For days they are held hostage. Each day you gather with family and friends and you pray for their safety and their return. After the passing of several weeks of intense emotional pain, news comes that your neighbor has been charged with insurrection, a crime against the state. Several nights later, he's led along with a group of fellow Christians into a small room where each is covered with pitched tar. As the sun goes down, the Christians are led to a large tented area where preparations have been made for an all-night orgy. In order to provide light for the party, the tar-covered Christians are literally lit on fire as their bodies burn. The only sound to be heard is that of Roman laughter and indulgence. Now, I just have to say this. If that image doesn't make you sick, I don't know what will. I share it with you, not, not to make your stomach flip, but to suggest that when you study persecution under Neronian rule, it's graphic. It's sickening. You can't study it without recognizing the depravity 
that men are capable of. This is what's happening in 64 AD as Peter begins to pen this book. It's also the year that Nero gives orders for the crucifixion of Peter. So let's come back to the question. Why is Peter writing this letter to the churches of Jesus? The churches spread out over the most significant provinces in Rome. It's because Peter sees it. He sees the need to challenge the church to remain missional and even for the world in a time where prosecution will increase. So let me bring this back to the time that we're living in today. As this podcast is being taped, there has not been in my lifetime more tension than there is today in Israel and the Middle East. Following the Hamas terrorist attacks on Israel October 7, things have escalated to a tipping point. The Gaza Strip has been stripped of its access to food, water, and electricity. Subjected to constant bombing on the part of Israel, they exist like caged animals with their backs to the wall. Israel remains resolute in their desire to undo the terroristic Hamas regime. A ground war is all but certain. Lebanon and Jordan have, in a more limited but decisive way, struck their own blows to Israel, creating the real possibility of a two-front war. The U.S. has pledged its ongoing support of Israel, while Iran stands at boiling point, protesting the war, naming America's president a war criminal. The wild cards, China, Russia, and North Korea, each stand at watch, seeking to calculate the most favorable moves for their respective countries. You cannot help but wonder if we do not stand, even this moment, at the brink of World War III. Add to that the specter of a new nuclear warhead, along with hypersonic technology, and the Bible's Armageddon, at least on a physical level, becomes a real possibility. It's all enough to make Rome's persecution of Christians a footnote in history. The question that becomes, as the old historian Francis Schaeffer might ask, how then shall we live? What's our response? What is the response called for by our spiritual commander, Jesus Christ? Enters this seemingly old book written circa 64 AD, 1st and 2nd Peter. But what, what, what relevance can a text this old have for us today? I always suggest much and plenty, but prepare yourself. The response of our Savior, <clears throat> I just want to project this, will be much different at a spiritual level than that of our world. We should expect such. After all, our commander is, is, is interested in just one thing. He always has been. Lost souls. Does this mean that the church is to withdraw from the world altogether, ignore the ongoing Things going on in our world today? Well, no, not at all. But it does mean that as we enter this tenuous time, the church must become razor clear about its purpose and place in this world. It's my hope then that over the next weeks and months, we might discover together the calling of the Lord on his church. This is not a day for missional fuzziness, but a day when the church must, like a laser-guided missile, Lock on to the right target. I will tell you in advance that the words of Peter are not easy, but they are right. I look forward to taking this journey together. Until next week, have a God-sized week.